the most successful people in life are those with the ability to focus their attention on a task so intensely that anything outside of that task that would be a, a distraction to the success of that task is blocked out and set aside. Now that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon the task that one is focusing upon. If it's a noble pursuit, then focus to the exclusion of anything else is a wonderful thing. If it's not a noble goal, then that kind of focus can have disastrous results. Jimmy Johnson is one of the best football coaches that has ever coached football in the United States. But Jimmy Johnson bragged in an interview shortly after he retired that he was so singularly focused upon coaching football, particularly the Dallas Cowboys in the early 90s, that it ruined his marriage. And he said in that interview that although it was painful, it was worth it. In his mind, winning the Super Bowl was worth sacrificing his marriage. While I like Jimmy, most of us, I trust, would challenge his priorities. There's nothing wrong with winning in athletics. In fact, if you're going to participate, then you ought to try to win. But there's everything wrong with sacrificing one's integrity in the process. Sacrificing a marriage to win a sporting event, even if it's the Super Bowl, and that sporting event is aimed at the amusement of others, that's far from an act of integrity. On the other end of the spectrum, though, we find the Apostle Paul. I suspect that Paul's personality was every bit as intense as Jimmy Johnson, since Jimmy has an intense personality. But his goal was different. His goal was the glorification of Jesus Christ with his life. And as a part of that goal, he was convicted of the importance of maintaining the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ while it was preached. And he was also convicted that he should preach a pure gospel to as many people as he could possibly preach it to. There were other aspects of his ministry, to be sure. But preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ was the primary aspect. It was the most significant aspect of his ministry. In Corinth, the purity of the gospel had been challenged. But not only that, there was a huge disconnect between the Corinthians' position in Christ as a result of receiving that pure gospel from Paul and their outworking of that position. Or in other words, the way they were living their lives. There's a huge disconnect there between their position in Christ and the way they're living their lives. Because Paul's focus was on glorifying God and maintaining the purity of the gospel, he couldn't ignore what was going on in that city. He had to do something about it. He had to speak up. There were problems in Corinth, and he had to respond. The first of the problems that Paul addresses in his letter to the Corinthians that we call 1 Corinthians may be the most well-known. And some people believe that it's the primary problem from which all the other problems flowed. And that was a problem of disunity. At its core, the Corinthian problem was one of selfishness, which Paul presents in the letter to the Corinthians as the opposite of love. We've talked about love a lot already this morning. 
in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul presents not hate as the opposite of love, but selfishness as the opposite of love. I think we've already seen that Jesus Christ was anything but selfish, was he not? He was selfless when he went to the cross to sacrifice himself for our sins. He was selfless, not selfish, and that's why we call it love, the greatest act of love that's ever been demonstrated in human history. But their selfishness led to disunity in that church. And the disunity in the church at Corinth threatened to shift the message away from the purity of the gospel itself upon or toward the messengers of the gospel, those who were presenting the gospel. And I'm afraid we share that problem today. Things have not changed. There's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon would say. That is still a problem in our Christian culture today with all the various methods of communication out there, television, radio, internet, podcasts, all the different methods. Our culture has developed, for better or for worse, Celebrity Bible teachers. You all know their names. I'm not going to mention any of them today. Most all, almost all of them are great guys. And for some, not for all, but for some, following a particular teacher has become more important than focusing upon the one who is being taught about. Now, I am no way implying that it's the fault of those who are doing the preaching. That's not my point here this morning. I remember being at a conference several years ago out of North Carolina, a Bible conference. We had a lineup of teachers all throughout that Saturday that was fantastic. It was incredible. But the keynote speaker that night was the one that most of the people had come to see. And I never forget the change in the room right before that keynote speaker was supposed to come out. There was a buzz in the room. There was an electricity in the room that was so intense. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before except for one time. I'd gone out to Las Vegas with a friend of mine, and we attended a, a World Heavyweight Championship boxing match. And there were celebrities everywhere. I mean, Bill Cosby was there, and Charlie's Angels were there. And if you remember those girls, I mean, there was just people everywhere. I played, I, I, well, I, I saw Whoopi Goldberg for what that's worth. <laughs> Muhammad Ali. I mean, saw tons of people. There was electricity in the air. That's the only thing that was ever even like that conference that day when this very well-known person was going to come out and speak. In fact, right before he came out, he came and sat right behind me and all eyes in the auditorium were on him. And I could hear people saying, there he is, he's right there. And I thought at first they were talking about me, but they weren't. I looked back and they were talking about him. Hey, listen, I like the guy too. I'm not going to tell you who it was because I, I really like him too. And he was so embarrassed by all that. Because he didn't come to tell anybody about him. He came to tell people about Jesus Christ. And he does that, by the way, all over the world in an incredible way. And he wanted no attention drawn to himself. And by the way, he did a great job. I mean, at the end of the day, if you listen to the tapes and you didn't know who the people were, the talks that were before him were pretty good, too. You see, it's not about the person. It's about Jesus Christ. Because as Paul will say in this passage, he didn't die for anybody. He didn't die for anybody's sins. Actually, I think there are, we, we could certainly say there are Christian martyrs that die for the faith. But in terms of dying for you and for me with regard to our salvation, there's only one that's done that. And it's none of us. So my point is not about the, the individual. and It's about the reaction of the crowd here. And that's Paul's point too. It's not going to be about Apollos. 
It's not going to be about Peter or it's not going to be about himself. It's going to be about the reaction that people were having to them that was inappropriate. They were so focused on the person that they, had, they were missing the message and the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus Christ in Paul and not Jesus Christ in Peter, not Jesus Christ in Apollos, as great as, as those men were at teaching. It's about Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul begins with a fairly gentle admonition to these folks. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, in verse 12, he's going to outline the quarrels. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Christmas and Gaius, that no man should say that you were baptized into my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should be made void. He begins in a forceful way, but in a gentle way. He's in a difficult situation with the Corinthians. We've studied that in our background information. They don't like him very much right now. He begins in a forceful but gentle way. The Greek term is parakaleo. It means to urge someone. He's begging them. He knows that feelings are tender in Corinth. And he doesn't want to begin the letter like a bull charging through a china shop. He begins it gently. There's always a temptation on the part of leadership to use raw power rather than persuasion to get things done. And that's usually a mistake. We need to guard against that. This would have been an even greater temptation for Paul and Corinth, given the cultural situation there. They admired people who used their leadership like a club, who used their leadership like a bull in a china shop to get things done. That was part of their culture. So it would have been an even greater temptation there. But Paul's not part of that culture. So he doesn't want to act that way. Now, he's heard that there are divisions in this church. The Greek term for division there is the same one that we use when we come up with our English word schism. There were schisms in that church. And Paul knows that if these schisms are allowed to fester, that it's going to be deadly to this church. And he doesn't want that. Divisions usually are deadly in a local congregation. I probably don't even have to tell you that. You've probably been around long enough and seen local congregations that develop divisions. And you know what happened to that church. A lack of harmony in a local church will kill that local church. And that's why Satan is so happy to foster divisions within a local church. Now, I'm not talking about divisions over significant things like a denial of the Trinity or a denial of salvation by grace through faith. You know the kind of divisions I'm talking about. Little things. 
What time a church is going to meet? What type of dress should we wear? What type of music are we going to sing? Those kind of things that at the end of the day really don't have anything to do with the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the kind of divisions that Satan loves. And I think that his, he and his demons work overtime in healthy churches to try to divide them over insignificant things. We need to be very careful about that. So Paul is urging the Corinthian believers to put this aside. And to be made complete. How? To be of the same mind and to be of the same judgment. So the primary idea in the passage is that they mature in their faith. That's what it means by being made complete. And the means of accomplishing that aspect is that they be of the same mind and the same judgment, especially when it comes to the gospel. That's what binds them together. That's what ultimately binds you and me together, is that we're both in Christ. We both have the same Savior. If you have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you are my brother in Christ. You are my sister in Christ. We are part of a family. Now, families have disagreements. Try getting in the car and not having decided where you're going to eat. you got five people in the car. See what kind of disagreements come up then. We never do that. That's against my policy from this day forward. We're never going to go out to eat without deciding before we get in the car. Ruins my sanctification. <laughs> but it's the gospel that binds them together. It's Jesus Christ that binds them together. That doesn't mean that we all have to like chicken and dumplings. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean we all have to like classical music. But in this context, it does mean that these Corinthian believers need to stop their fascination with a messenger over the message. That's got to go. This division over Paul, Apollos, Peter, and I'll talk about the one over Christ in a minute. That's got to go. And that's brought out in the next several verses. I should mention here briefly that there doesn't appear to be a full-blown split in the Corinthian congregation just yet. It may be coming, but there's not a full-blown split just yet. After all, he is writing one letter to the entire church. He doesn't have to write to the different factions. There is no first church of Peter yet or second Apollos just yet in Corinth. In verse 11, Paul tells us how he found out about these problems. He finds out about them from Chloe's people. Chloe's a female name. Chloe apparently was a businesswoman that had either a significant family or had a lot of people that traveled with her. We don't know if she's a member of the Corinthian church or if she's a member of the church at Ephesus, where Paul is at this point. But in some way, Chloe is well enough respected, that there, and there's a connection between those two churches, that some of her people, her respected people, have let Paul know that there's a big problem brewing in Corinth. Remember, Paul's in Ephesus about 200 miles from Corinth when he writes this. In verse 12, he explains what the problem is. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. It should be noted here, because this is a difficult passage, especially that last phrase, isn't it? This is a little difficult, but we have to note, Paul is condemning all of those categories of people. He's condemning the people that are saying, I am of Apollos. He's condemning the people that are saying, I am of Paul. He's condemning the people that are saying, I am of Cephas, that's Peter. But he's also lumping in with them the people that are saying, I am of Christ. That has led New Testament scholars who struggle over that phrase. 
to come to an understanding that the people who are saying, I am of Christ, are actually saying it with a false piety. You know, that can be done. It's like a friend of mine, who's a very, very, very dear friend, very close. And one day we were having a discussion about Christianity and denominations came up. And this is what he said. He said, Bruce, listen, I love you. But listen, we, I can't stand this idea of Meth- the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Bible church people. He said, I go to the Church of Christ. <laughs> I said, well, I'm glad you explained that to me. I'm glad, I got, I got, glad that got out, that out of the way. No, I think that's kind of what was going on here. It's not that they were saying, listen, we're not focused on the messenger. We're focused on the Lord. Something different is going on because Paul is condemning all of those people in all those groups here. This Christ group apparently had some sort of false piety. It's almost like they were putting their thumbs underneath their armpits and saying, well, I'm, I'm of Christ. There was arrogance with that as well. Of course, that's what Paul really wants, isn't it? He wants them all to be of Christ and to set aside all the human messengers. So the fact that he's condemning them all in that passage means that there's something wrong with the way they're saying it. Much like my, my very dear friend. There's no indication in this passage at all or anywhere else in the letter that Paul is upset with Apollos. And there's no indication at all that he's upset with Peter. Sometimes people like to find fights where fights don't exist. Well, there's no fight here between Paul and between Peter. That's not at all what's going on. In verse 13, has Christ been divided? No, he hasn't been divided. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? Christ died to make heaven possible for them. Not Paul, not Peter, and not Apollos, and not any human messenger of the Lord. Not any human messenger. Now, I appreciate it that you love me. I do. I appreciate that you take such good care of me and are such a great encouragement to me. I do appreciate that, so don't stop. (laughs) But I never want to point you to me. We said before in our introductory lessons that probably the biggest thing that was going on in Corinth was that they were allowing this culture to seep into the church rather than the church being a positive influence on the culture. And this is one of those areas. The Corinthians were apparently caught up in the patterns of behavior that characterized those in the culture of Corinth who were very zealous and very protective of their teachers of philosophy. The Roman historian Dio writes about a period of Greek history that's just prior to the one that Paul is ministering. And he says this, listen carefully, he says, This was a time, too, when one could hear the crowds of wretched sophists around Poseidon's temple shouting and reviling one another, their disciples, as they were called, fighting with one another, many writers reading aloud their stupid works, many poets reciting their own poems, while others applauded them, and peddlers, not a few, peddling whatever they happened to have. Now that was written about a period just prior to the period that Paul is writing about here, writing to here. Dio goes on to say that he's given this example in his writings because in his judgment, the same disgusting behavior was still going on in places like Corinth, to quote him, and he wanted to steer his audiences away from this vice toward virtue. You see, even in the secular realm, Dio saw that that was a mistake. Another writer of the same general period, Philostratus, another Roman, 
recorded that the disciples of one particular sophist were so angered when they perceived an insult to their philosopher by another philosopher's disciples that they sent a group of thugs to beat to death the other philosopher. Now that's the culture in Corinth at the time in which Paul is writing. That's a problem, wouldn't you say? And what Paul is seeing in that culture is the same things that are happening in in that Corinthian culture outside the church are starting to make their way into the church. They're starting to argue over their teachers. Who's better? Mine's better than yours. No, mine's better than yours. If you do have this attitude, don't send a group of thugs to beat me up, please. (laughs) That's what they did. I wonder if Paul was thinking, gosh, somebody's going to send somebody out to try to kill me. That's so wrong. There's something terribly wrong about that. That's selfishness, not love. So it's no wonder that Paul takes this situation so seriously. This is a part of their culture, and it was making its way into the church, and it needed to stop, and it needed to stop now, Paul says. There's one final thing in this passage that I want to mention this morning, and that is that Paul is drawing a distinction in the last few verses between the gospel itself and water baptism. His primary interest in this passage is not baptism. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward conviction of faith in Jesus Christ. It's done once, after one is saved. Paul's primary concern is not baptism or who baptized who. His primary concern is with salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. So when he says in this passage that he's thankful that he didn't baptize any in Corinth except for Gaius and Crispus and the household of Stephanus, he's not speaking against baptism. He's speaking against the abuses of baptism. And these people who were saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. So I'm better than you because you were baptized by Apollos. He was the associate pastor that day. I was baptized by the senior pastor. You see, that kind of stuff is silly, and Paul is trying to stop it. But listen, he's not arguing against baptism. Some people have used this passage, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, as a validation for, for refusing to baptize someone. That's not what the passage is about. So we don't want to do that. Baptism is perfectly legitimate. Baptism is not part of the gospel, though. Not water baptism. Water baptism is something that takes place after one has trusted Jesus Christ. To demonstrate that they are, they're giving a public demonstration that they are indeed part of the body of Christ. It's a public testimony. It should not be confused with the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here. So we shouldn't use this passage to argue against water baptism. That's an unfortunate use of the passage. Here's the bottom line in verses 10 through 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Divisions had arisen in Corinth over the messengers of the gospel. And it was clouding the presentation of the gospel itself. When they started arguing over who had baptized them, something's wrong in Corinth. And that had to stop. It is the gospel that is of supreme importance, not the one who presented it to them. Our focus should never be on the communicator of the gospel. Our focus should be on Jesus Christ 
who was crucified for us.